Hello out there, thinkers, linkers, and mappers. We are really happy to host a series of conversations around the topic of tools for thinking. Our longer-term goal is to spark a diverse, connected, shared memory that will help us make important decisions together. Our near-term goal with these podcasts is to blow more oxygen on the growing tools for thinking sector, addressing key issues and talking with the people who are doing the work. This podcast is created by Betaworks, a New York City-based startup studio. I'm Jerry Mikulski, your interlocutor and obsessive mind mapper. Our topic today is thinking from the bottom up. Our guests are Sönke Ahrens and Gordon Brander, the founder of Subconscious. And we're going to dive into note-taking and protocols and a series of topics that um, have a lot of juice for, for all of us here. But first, I'll ask um, each of our guests to introduce themselves lightly. Uh, Zünke, can you say, like, how did you get to the, the place you are now with note-taking and Zettelkasten and things like that? Yeah, thank you for the invite. Um, I'm the author of How to Take Smart Notes, a book that came out of um, procrastination on my uh, doctoral thesis and also um, out of frustration of not having a good guide for students um, to write papers and um, deal with more complex projects. Love that. And um, you just happened to start improving your note-taking or did you hit some work that, that suddenly opened this up for you? Or how, how did you trip across the, what became your, your sort of methods? Well, Nicholas Luhmann, um, the brain behind the Zettelkasten system, was the author I read most. I was very much interested in systems theory um, so it's a sociological uh, theory. And in systems theory, it's all about how to reduce external complexity, allowing internally complexity to build up. And it took me a while to understand that his practical way of writing is very much uh, mirroring um, the theoretical framework, because in the Zettelkasten, it is reducing about reducing complexity from the outside to be able to build up complexity internally. And um, it took me a while to understand that this is more than just a quirky way of taking and organizing notes. Um, but it is much more interesting when you get into it and the reasons why it works and the connections with um, new ideas in uh, learning theory and learning research. Um, so it kind of took on and became an interest for a while. And it seemed worth writing it down and let the world know that it kind of makes sense to think about it a little bit more deeply. Thank you. And it's a, it's a rich and deep vein of, of ideas and practices, as we'll see uh, sort of through this call. Um, thank you. Uh, Gordon, uh, a little bit about your path here and, and also maybe your, your bridges, your connections to note-taking and, and some of uh, Zernke's work. Yeah, I'm Gordon Brander. I'm uh, CEO of Subconscious. So at Subconscious, we're building a worldwide Web3 thought graph. So you can think of this as something kind of like... Uh, Obsidian graph or Rome graph, uh, networked thought, um, but distributed over a peer-to-peer -peer open protocol. Um, you know, I, I actually I spent most of my career working on the web platform and on browsers. I I couldn't shake the feeling that uh, we were kind of trapping our our thoughts in little app boxes, and that one of the magical things about the the early web is that it it built on top of this open protocol called HTTP. Um, that ended up sort of blossoming into an enormous ecosystem. So I started wondering uh, what might we be able to do with a shared protocol for thought. Um, and actually, I, I uh, Zunka, I have a copy of your book here. Um, this was really influential in the early stages of thinking through this, the idea maze of this problem space. You can sort of see um, maybe in this camera. We've got a bunch of bookmarks here. This is sort of my heat map of insights and... Um, one more little thing here. I don't know if you can see those uh, shoe boxes up on my top shelf there, but that was my Zettelkasten uh, that I used to develop the ideas for 
for subconscious, both the protocol and uh, the app. So I have to say your thinking has been very influential on my own thought process. Love that. And, and uh, Luman left behind, uh, I don't know, 100,000 uh, notes. Is that some large number of, of his sort of life work in boxes like that? I think 70,000. 70,000 sounds right. Yeah. Published manuscripts um, still in the making. Yeah. Uh, Sönke, could you introduce the well, like Zettelkasten, uh, Slipbox? What, how, do, how do we think about it? Sure. Um, I mean, it's not a technique uh, Luhmann invented himself. It's a very old technique, um, which is basically just collecting standardized, uh, standardized notes in one place. And um, what was unique about his system is that it was not sorted by topics, but by having a fixed place within the system. So he just numbered um, the uh, notes individually, usually with only one idea per note. And um, by changing between numbers and letters, he was able to branch out um, internally when he added later notes to an existing note. And what is special about this system is that it very much emphasizes the development of ideas. So uh, the richness comes from um, being able to add to existing ideas, expanding on them and developing um, thoughts that can then later be turned into manuscripts, articles, books, etc. And being able to use information you encounter along the way. When you research one paper, you cannot help but encounter interesting ideas that are not um, particularly fitting into the project you're currently working on, but maybe interesting for future projects. And for him, knowing that he will spend the rest of his life and his whole career on writing and thinking, it just kind of made sense to use all these accidental insights, accidental findings, to add them to possible future projects and therefore building up a huge resource um, he could later draw from. And that solves a lot of problems people who write often encounter. Um, the fear of the blank page, the question what to write on, um, because you can just look up where things have kind of accumulated. And especially when you're a student um, getting familiar with a topic, you don't know in the beginning where rich material is. Um, you don't know if there are good articles and books about the question you're interested in, but you need that. Um, <laughs> you can't invent everything on your own. So it kind of makes sense to turn it around and start collecting um, what you encounter, doing the things you do anyway, and then make the decision on what to write, what to turn into in manuscript. And I think that's what Gordon mentioned, um, that it's it turns a usually top-down process around and enables you to develop something bottom-up. It's, it's really interesting. Many years ago, uh, I was a big fan of HyperCard, as are many people kind of in our, in our little, in our field here. Um, and I realized HyperCard was stacks of cards. Isn't that funny? And I was using HyperCard in a way that I think was my own. I had never heard of Zettelkasten until much, much later. But I, was, I created my poor man's version of that by creating little um, short uh, unique strings that I would attach to cards. So if I had new contact that I put into the contact zone of my HyperCard deck, I would put N-N-E-T-S for neural nets because I knew that uh, that person was interested in neural networks. And then if I searched through my stack for N-nets, that's not a string that occurs naturally in English. And then I created a bunch of those little strings and it's eh, sort of a tiny bit uh, flavored like like Zettelkasten. And I'm, I'm wondering, um, Gordon, how did you like, how did doing Zettelkasten kind of work affect 
you're coming up with subconscious and, and how these things maybe fit. Yeah. You know, um, Zunka's book was great for me to find because it helped solidify a number of intuitions that I had been forming through through my own sort of hacking on note-taking systems. I, I hadn't been aware of Luman at the time. Um, there's this theme throughout your, your book, Zunka, of thinking as an ambient process. Uh, like if I, I think you mentioned like this process of sitting down in front of a blank page and having blank page anxiety. Uh, I think we've all experienced that, that it's a sort of um, indicator of a broken process. Uh, that if you have a system like Zettelcast and when you sit down, uh, a lot of the thinking is already done. And, and I had this experience actually um, uh, while practicing Zettelcast in the old fashioned way. It was sort of a personal experiment. I got a bunch of index cards. I, I played around with Luman's uh, numbering style. Uh, there's this very interesting kind of process by which you file a card away. Uh, I'm trying to remember the phrase you use, Zunka, but I think it's uh, filing it where you'd like to find it again in the future, something like that. Did I get that right? Yeah. It's yeah. very much like when you look for your keys. It kind of makes sense to put them where you will uh, look for them when you go out of the door. Um, yes, it's a very intuitive process. Like you're sort of feeling it out. And I found that it did two things for me that really um, changed my creative process. One was over time, these little clusters would build up of related thoughts. And they were themes that I, it felt like I hadn't thought them before, but evidently I had because they were there. Um, the other thing that it did is as I was going through this intuitive process, trying to figure out where to put the card in the shoebox, uh, it, was, it was like I would stumble upon ideas that I had completely forgotten about. And then that would spark new ideas. So I'd end up in these creative flurries of like writing new cards and trying to file them. <laughs> it was like a snowball effect. It was like both very stressful and very generative um, and, and uh, quite unique. I, I don't feel that way when I use, you know, your average note-taking app. The average note-taking app feels much more like uh, you're sort of th taking a note and throwing it into a void. There's no step two, right? That that was a really uh, kind of profound shift. Um, and I have to say a lot of the ideas that ended up making their way into, into the protocol that we're building, into the app that we're building, were very influenced by this notion of trying to close a feedback loop, trying to bump back into things that you've uh, thought about in the past in provocative and creative ways. Can you say a little bit more about that loop, just about the that feedback, how, to, how it worked for you, can you, or if you can remember an example? Yes, I actually, I would love to hear Zunka's thoughts on this, but I tend to interpret a lot of things through the lens of um, this theory, the cybernetics theory, which is sort of the theory of, of feedback loops. So this is looking at systems and understanding them as sort of uh, recursive conversations. You keep returning to the same state in the system over and over, in a loop. And um, Zettelkasten, for me, did this in a very clever way. You would take a note, and the act of having to file it, and then having to think about where to file it, was sort of closing a loop between your past self and your present self, because your past self took a bunch of notes on, on these topics, right? And most of, the, most of the things that your past self had done, you'd already forgotten about. Um, but the act of having to go back and, and find the right place to put it was actually like, a, it, it closed the loop in a really interesting way. One of the insights that I've gleaned from cybernetics is that um, sort of nonlinear energy in systems always comes from feedback. So you know, my takeaway from this is that if my note-taking practice felt like a slog, it meant that there was a broken feedback loop somewhere. Um, <laughs> I see Cherry giving the jazz hands. And uh, I... I noticed too, Zunka, that you use this concept of a feedback loop all, all over in your book. And I'm wondering if any of that rings true to you and if, if that was part of your thinking or Luman's thinking. It's really interesting that you mentioned that. And um, cybernetics is where systems theory comes from. So it, it draws a lot from the early cybernetics ideas. So um, the concept of feedback loops and having processes of iteration 
Um, so change that is not genuinely new in itself, but um, an iteration from something old, newly assembled. That That's all part of Lumen's um, toolbox of thinking. So it's certainly uh, no coincidence that it resonates with you on that level. The other thing I find really interesting is what you said earlier about the difference between how people think they think and process and how they actually do that. So this um, discovery of, well, there's a cluster building up of ideas. I wasn't aware I was thinking about that. <laughs> and often we don't see thinking as kind of procedural task in itself that has a lot of automatic components to it. It's so easy to think about thinking as everything that's conscious. But that's not true. Even highly abstract scientific theoretical thinking has a lot of intuitive components. And writing them down and putting them into a system helps with ex making them explicit. And only having them explicit in front of your eyes allows you to tinker with them and realize that your thinking process is actually a little bit different to what you think it is. And for me, it was interesting because I was working on um, history of science and how people describe how they came to their uh, insights and what you can gather from the records, how different it is. So it, it, it does resonate with my own experience, including discovering that you had thoughts before when you write them down and try to integrate them into a system and see, oh, oh it's, it's already there. And often my experience is it wasn't even thought by myself, it was someone else. And I kind of absorbed it and turned it into my own idea. It's really interesting how this landscape of ideas emerges and evolves. And, and I'm, I'm wondering, because Zettelkasten is a slip box and it's very much about boxes, but I'm wondering if either of you ends up wishing that it wasn't a box, that it was something else like a murder board. You know how they have crime shows where there's photographs with pins and you know yarn that connects all the ideas, like, or, or a space, a 3D space in which you could sort of wander and stare up at the things. Do you, do you ever find yourself wishing for those things or are you happy that these things, these, these nuggets of notes are sort of contained within a simple thing like, like uh, boxes of slips? I find that that's an open question. And I'm curious about um, people who work on mind map software and visualizing software. And because I often find myself visualizing uh, connections separately and using a whiteboard and i like the physical space of the whiteboard um, to look for connections and i can't do that um, just looking at the screen at my uh, settle custom itself um, so there is an interplay um, between these tools and i sometimes wonder if there is a possibility of connecting them in a smarter way than i do it um, but but that's where um, technology comes into play. And the other thing I sometimes wonder is about these boundaries um, between the individual um, settled custom and what Gordon is working on. Um, because in systems theory, you need a clear boundary uh, between outside complexity and inside complexity, but it doesn't have to be connected to an individual um, one subject. It can also be a system which contains out of a group of people or a culture. And um, so, so my interest in what Gordon is doing is how do you create boundaries? Do you think about creating boundaries um, within a fairly open space um, of social notes. What are your thoughts yeah. on that? This is the open question I guess we're exploring, isn't it? I've, I've wanted to understand how to 
adapt some of the insights from the Zettelkasten method, which, um, as I read it anyway, was largely developed for a sort of single-player context, and to understand how we might adapt those ideas to a multiplayer context, even potentially a massively multiplayer context, like very large crowds. Though I think we'll probably start with the smaller problem of teams. Um, I I share your intuition here about um, systems in in nature uh, and in other sort of complex uh, adaptive systems. They they have semi-permeable boundaries. Um, one of the ways that that has influenced the design of the protocol we're building is we've we've created these sort of um, zones of thought, semi-permeable boundary spaces that we call spheres. The, the protocol is called Newsphere, which is a bit of an in-joke. It means planetary thought or planetary consciousness. Um, and, and it's really, though, it's, it's sort of tapestry of, of little spheres each which, which are uh, owned and signed cryptographically by, uh, at this point, an individual, in future, maybe teams. Uh, but the sphere is semi-permeable in the sense that um, everything shares the same peer-to-peer substrate. Um, so I could be working on a sphere of thought. Jerry could be working on a sphere of thought. We could actually look at sort of the overlap between these things. We could also cherry-pick ideas back and forth that would retain authorship history. Um, I I think this is a greenfield space. I don't think anyone's really nailed it yet. Um, But for me, it felt important to start with the assumption that there ought to be these these zones. Um, And this is reflected all the way up at the the highest levels of the protocol. There's no um, namespace that is global. Everything is subjective or intersubjective. There's no quote-unquote objective namespace. And that was sort of a deliberate choice. We felt that it made sense to allow consensus to emerge from the bottom up rather than trying to impose it from the top down. Um, but I, I will say we have a long road ahead of us, I think, to, uh, <laughs> to figure out what works uh, in sort of bringing these ideas into a multiplayer context. I'm, I'm curious, Zunke, if you've seen anyone else, uh, any other researchers exploring this notion of Zettelkasten in a multiplayer space? Well, it is being discussed, certainly. Um, and there are some experiments. Rome Book Club, for example, tries to put a lot of people into one graph and they quickly discovered that they need some kind of standardization in uh, notation. I feel I'm not that familiar um, and not that immersed in it, but I feel it's more moderated. So there are certain people who make then decisions on standardization, um, while what you described feels more uh, organically developing. Um, that you have the chance of a culture or a thread of a certain topic emerging and then kind of closing up and developing their own uh, standards and ideas, which is then not bound to particular persons. Um, So that people can enter the space, learn the particular culture of it, and develop it further. And you need to find the balance between, okay, a tradition that is still lively enough to allow new content, new ideas, new people to come in, um, but not being that open that it kind of falls apart. Let me take a step a little bit backwards. Um, maybe back to single player. How does software change the experience of Settlecasten? And because there, you could use different kinds of software to implement it, and and you know software has its things. And I I use Readwise, and I I'm signed up on Hypothesis, but I don't really use it. But with either of those, I could highlight a piece of text, and in principle, that could become a note in my Settlecasten. Although I I've not tried to use either of those apps. To, to, to do settle custom, but and, and then and then there's a second question lurking right behind that. What happens when eight people highlight exactly the same page, which you see in several you know different apps right now? If you're if you're reading on Medium, it'll show you which of your friends highlighted you know which paragraph in the article you're reading right now, right there, which is kind of cool because it's a step toward multiplayer. But how does how does software change the experience? You know, I um, 
I feel I don't have a good answer here, but I will lead by saying I'm very lazy. And <laughs> the reason that I'm not a Zettelkasten pro is that the act of filing a physical card for me was both very generative and very taxing. You have to be sort of committed uh, to it almost as a job. Uh, as uh, Well, it is, it's, your, it's your work, right? It's your livelihood. It's your creative practice. Um, so part of my, I think, pull, start beginning to pull the thread on what software could do in the space was not only this question of multiplayer, uh, but also in what ways might we cause that kind of bottom-up emergence in, in an ambient way without uh, so much user intervention. Now, something is lost in that translation process, I, I freely admit, but I wanted to see if I could create the, the Zettel experience for the lazy person <laughs> like me. I think laziness um, is really important here. Laziness matters because not that not that everybody's lazy, but that the effort that you have to expend to create some order out of chaos can't be, you know, huge, can't be, you can't have to climb a mountain to go get some benefits for it. It's got to be pretty easy to do and aligned with how your neurons are busy firing every day. Yeah. Now that said, I did settle casting on hard mode with uh, paper index cards and a pen uh, because I wanted to experience um, the, the sort of the, 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 the most basic level and, and understand it as a system. Uh, but I do know there are a number of, of software tools these days that make some parts of this process easier. I, perhaps Zunka could speak more to them. I, I experienced with both uh, physical paper, pen, uh, Zettel Custom and different tools. I feel it's still a trade-off. There are certain uh, aspects of writing by hand which is distract, distraction-free, which is just a physical way of working I, I very much like um, that gets lost when I look at the screen. There's also the physical arrangement of the notes. Um, you don't need to know exactly where they are. I mean, you kind of know, okay, uh, on the top right, there is uh, the interesting cluster. And that is also lost with software. At, at least I haven't seen um, a representation of that physical experience. It came to my mind again, um, reading uh, Annie Murphy-Paul's book on the extended mind, which I, I find I can highly recommend because it stresses the importance of thinking within physical surroundings. And the Zettelkasten takes it a little bit more metaphorically, uh, thinking inside the Zettelkasten box. But that seems to me the trade-off. On the other hand, you have all the advantages of being able to do a full-text search, um, of um, being quicker with moving things around, um, with having um, connections suggested, and not having to carry around 70,000 uh, <laughs> notes. Accessibility in... is big, yes. Yeah. You're not always near your, your boxes. Exactly. Uh, it, it is a lifestyle decision. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I sometimes look for kind of additions to the software experience by, for example, going to the whiteboard or having a printout very early of a manuscript draft and rearranging papers on my desk. And I feel I need that. Um, but it, it can be combined. It works in a way. We had Alice Albrecht on an early podcast, and she has a, an app called Recollect, um, where you could think of snippets that she is, help, that, that she is building a system to help you create documents to basically write things. And you could think of each of the clips or each of the sections or each of the nuggets as a settle custom element that's being queued up in a sequence that then makes logical sense as a paragraph, as a sentence, as a chapter, uh, right? And, and going forward. But this whole idea of, of atomicity, like what is, the, what is the right chunk size, the right nugget size, and then serendipity, which Gordon was referring to earlier. And I just want to uh, share my screen for a second um, because... Um, I've been using this brain thing for a really long time, and it has some of these kind of aspects in a really interesting way. Uh, tell me if you can see my brain uh, on the screen. 
Yes, I see myself in the brain. <laughs> yeah. Where, so, where's so, Zunka? So, so this is, um, so here's uh, Zunka. And this is my, and I've got uh, Zunka under Tittlecasten fans. I should also connect you here because, so let's go back to uh, you. Here, here you are, Gordon. Oh, great. I'm on the new version of the brain, which is freezing every now and then. So I need to stop sharing and crash my brain and come back. Uh, part of what I want to show is that there's there's like a neighborhood. There's a there's a like one of the one of the interesting things. One of the things that I find compelling about it is that when I'm looking at one thing, I'm looking at everything around, around it immediately, always, because that's just the way this thing presents information. And that's different from I'm looking at a note or a card or a piece, and then I have to go look up and see other notes next to each other. So, um, Gordon, when you're talking about the serendipity of when you're looking for a card, you find other cards. I'm, I'm picturing myself in the days of yore when I would use libraries and go to the card catalog and I would leaf through or go stand in, in the shelves uh, and actually – Oh, this isn't, you know, here's the book I'm looking for, or where's the book I'm looking for? Oh my gosh, look at these things. And we, you know, I think that was a, a way that we all increased our serendipity early in life. Um, but we sort of, um, we don't have enough of that now in our lives. Sorry. So here's my brain back up. Um, and I just wanted to point out a couple things here. These are my notes from this call. So you'll notice below this, this thought. Uh, thinking from the bottom up is where I'm putting everything related to this podcast episode, including later when we publish it, I will put the video link on top of this thought, etc. And you'll notice down here, these are notes that I took during the conversation. So this is a Greensfield space, nobody's nailed it yet. And then I've connected it up to Lumen, who was influenced by Talcott Parsons, who was an early sociologist and systems thinker, who influenced a whole bunch of other people like uh, Alfred Chandler and Robert Neely Bella and unfortunately, all white men back in the day. Uh, but there's, there's this whole philosophical kind of tradition that's interesting and kind of at hand. I also connected it to the professor and the madman because our conversation got me thinking about when Simon, when, uh, uh, when the OED was developed, uh, basically, uh, there was a guy who was interned in an asylum who, William Minor, who contributed sort of the most, um, uh, the most, uh, entries to the, the dictionary. And I'm wondering what was the format of the slips where uh, everybody contributed to the dictionary because they they had set out a call, basically they crowdsourced the OED. Uh, and that's interesting. So uh, I'll stop with the screen share, but, but the notion of adjacency and nugget size is really, really interesting to me in the design of these systems. And it feels to me like like there's a bunch of different ways of conquering this. And we're right now in this funny little exploratory phase where there's a bunch of different kinds of software that don't play nicely together. Um, Gordon, one of the things I love about your mission is you're trying to figure out like what rules do we need on the playground so that all these different things might play nicely together. And I'm wondering if you'd say a little bit more about that and we can wander into the multiplayer conversation. Yeah, although I don't want to oversell it because what I'm trying to find is the minimum set of enabling rules rather than a sort of maximal set that would force everyone in line. Um, the protocol we're building is very open-ended. It's basically an envelope format that allows you to uh, add some key value metadata um, to define a version history, which ends up being quite important for citability, but also for uh, some table stakes, things like sync. Um, and it adds a security layer it's quite, it's quite inspired, actually, by, by SMTP, by HTTP, by the packet switching, very classic protocols. Um, and uh, part of my motivation here is I have, I have a friend who was part of MetaWeb, uh, which was uh, this knowledge graph project in the early 2000s, ended up being acquired by Google, integrated into those knowledge cards that you see. This is one of the largest efforts uh, historically to build a kind of semantic web. And um, I think often the temptation in trying to get these things to play together is to sort of create a universal language, like a perfect language, a scientific language, right? Uh, these efforts often seem not to pan out. Um, these, these sort of top-down efforts to, to codify. Um, what what um, the folks in MetaWeb did instead was they kind of ingested a very large amount of mostly coherent information, and spent a lot of time getting it to cohere in a sort of second pass. Um, for my money, I think that's the way to approach this problem as well. If we can have a substrate 
that the apps all share, then you get what in computer science we might call um, uh, adversarial interoperability, <laughs> basically. <laughs> Standards emerge in retrospect. So you have a popular tool like Photoshop that has a proprietary format called PSD. Then all the other competitors are like, hey, I'd like to steal some of those users. So they, inter they, they interoperate with PSD, right? They implement the, the protocol and pretty soon you get to this um, it's not utopian outcome, but it's a better outcome where everything kind of works together pretty well. Um, and, and I think that that's kind of the pragmatic world that, that I'm aiming for. You know, I think there, there are a couple things that I do see in common with a lot of these tools. So I expect we might find some interop at higher levels too. Uh, to your point, um, a sort of unit of thought. I think, Zunka, you call them like shipping containers for thought in the book, which I thought was a beautiful metaphor. It's kind of a notion that you have a single idea and you box it up. Um, that is something that we're leaning into in the app that we're building. Like the idea is to have like little small atomic units of thought. I think of them as like little little genes, right? Like, and by sort of tumbling them together, you 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 might evolve larger thoughts from the bottom up. And and uh, that was that was actually very influenced by by Zunka's book, I think um, this is something that Zettelkasten does very well, particularly because when you do it with cards, you can't write long. It's not an option. You have to break it down into little little chunks. <laughs> yeah, it's one of these restrictions uh, which actually um, produce a lot of freedom. Looking forward, really, to what's being developed uh, in, in this space and my way of dealing with it as someone who's not um, actively involved in developing software is I'm trying to keep everything I do in my settle custom as simple as possible and trying not to explore all the possibilities that individual apps offer, um, but to restrict myself very to something very closely resembling the um, original um, pen and paper settle custom. Because my hope is that with developments like yours, um, there will be a standard somewhere soon um, that then enables you to um, be more relaxed about the future developments without locking yourself into you know, some kind of um, system. I can't help but wonder how much Lumen would have loved search, just a computer and its search capacities, just that might have blown his mind. But, but, but that simple feature that we take for granted very often is just so powerful for the kind, the kind of work we're thinking about. Yeah, he, th there were uh, students of him who um, introduced him to very early um, settled custom adaptations with very simple hypertext. And um, he was very clear about not being interested in that. <laughs> so interesting, right? Uh, and so many thinkers, original thinkers about this space, uh, whether it's Ted Nelson or uh, or others, or Doug Engelbart. You know, uh, Doug Engelbart gave us the mother of all demos, which which is the interface that we're using right this minute with each other, with overlapping windows, and I've got a mouse-like cursor on the screen. That's all mother mother of all demos. And then spent the rest of his life trying to replicate that particular exact thing on different machines with more power, instead of riffing on it in different ways with communities of other people doing stuff. And so other people founded the Bootstrap Institute and sort of took his ideas in different directions, but. But he, in some sense, couldn't or didn't. And I'm, real, I'm just really interested in, in the kind of mental flexibility that it takes to invent these new paradigms. Because as we hinted early in this conversation, it feels like we're on the threshold of somebody coming up with better ways of representing nuggets of concepts and weaving them together into some tapestry for all of us to use together. And, and my own amateur thesis on this is that we are a stupider civilization than we normally would be because we don't have a shared memory like this. I think this is civilizational urgency around this topic. I don't think this is a, gosh, wouldn't it be cool if we took notes better kind of question. I think this is a, hey, we could probably stop Trump from lying all the time if we had, if journalists had a method of sharing what they know and agreeing to something and feeding it into a shared memory 
um, that Steve Bannon was also feeding because he would be in the space as well with his ideas. And I, I'm just like playing out what is that? What does the space look like that allows, permits, contains players with extremely different goals, opinions, and methods to coexist and play nicely, or at least if, even if some of them are not trying to play nicely so that the space doesn't, doesn't fall apart and, uh, and dissolve into chaos. Because I think all of us have tried multiplayer tools that, that rapidly sort of dissolve into the kind of chaos that we're busy trying to avoid here, right? So what is the minimum set of protocols and rules that help us build spaces like that? I think these are really important questions right now. I feel there is something on a very, very low level missing um, where incentives for quality, etc., are being implemented and not on a such a high level where it's becoming clunky and about censorship and all that kind of questions, but just having basic incentives to um, popularize the quality content and having that on a such low level implemented that a dynamic can emerge. So peer review um, procedures and signs are so enormously clunky when you look at it and looking for something to scale it down to, to a tweet level <laughs> that that is something I, I'm really looking forward to um, that would shift the incentives um, profoundly. I see tweets out there and I'm like, each tweet is kind of like a settle in a settle custom, right? You could think of the tweet stream, you could think of the tweet stream as just an endless set of slips floating by in a queue. Um, but then it gets really interesting because what if any one of us, and when we retweet or when we pin something or, or you know, do some other software gesture that says, I'd like to either remember this or connect it to other ideas, what is that gesture like and how does that work? Because now it's no longer just a tweet. Now it's something else. And that's really interesting because, Gordon, you're trying to think of each of these little nuggets or objects as just floating in some space so that they're reusable, I think, in lots of different ways, in, in rich ways. And I, I love that. That's a... I think that's an equally important concept is the, the sort of composability, modularity, reusability of each of these little uh, shiny nuggets of, of information. I, I share your intuition here about the Twitter. Um, in particular, I think the interest graph is a, is a rather important tool for thought um, that was sort of created accidentally. And, and Twitter, I think, doesn't see itself as a tool for thought and actively resists it in many ways. And yet, you do see a little subculture of people using it in this way, uh, almost in a Zettelkasten-like way. Um, you know, quote tweets are basically transclusions. Uh, threads are essentially like nice little clusters of related thoughts, uh, although there are some limitations. Um, when I look at it, though, I, I think about uh, if, if each of these little tweets is sort of like a, a meme, like a little, a little idea gene, um, what is the evolutionary selection pressure that's being applied to the system? And, and what kinds of creatures might we expect to emerge out of the primordial ooze? Like, uh, it doesn't seem to me to be really um, applying a selection pressure that we would expect to, to generate sort of coherent thought. It's, it's often um, he who dunks the most sort of gets the most <laughs> Twitter points. Uh, rather adversarial kind of in tone. Um, very emotive, like it's all about the likes, you know, uh, it's all about the, the retweets and boosting. So retweets as a kind of um, viral mechanism, I think reward uh, very aggressive content um, because you can, you can get reach by saying something everyone likes. You can also get reach by saying something everyone dislikes, but you can really get reach if you say something that's like poised on the knife's edge so that a large number of people like it and another large number of people dislike it and they'll fight over it endlessly. And that's, that's really what gets you the big, you know, sort of viral hits. Um, so I wonder in what ways we might be able to borrow some of these mechanisms, but perhaps set up a different kind of environment that rewards um, other kinds of behavior. I don't want to make too much of a normative statement here, but like, uh, it does seem like if we want to evolve complex ideas, 
we, we might be able to borrow some techniques from systems that have worked to evolve complex ideas like Settlecasting or, or like peer review and what ways might that be adapted to a sort of multiplayer context. Can it be made easy? Um, I think there has been actually some successful experimentation here. Recently, Twitter rolled out this uh, sort of fact-checking uh, tool where you can essentially crowdsource uh, context for a viral tweet. Um, this seems to work much better than I would expect. Um, I feel that the space of, of mechanisms like this is, has barely been explored yet. Um, but it does feel crucial that we figure out how to think together over the network. Uh, we sort of have whole planet challenges ahead of us, like climate change, right? Um, like biodiversity loss. Like, how are we going to tackle those if we can't think at a, at a similar scale? Absolutely. Uh, Sunke? I, I totally agree. I think that that is the, the big um, task we have in front of us because everything else is kind of dependent on that. If we want to find new big solutions for global problems, we need um, spaces to explore solutions and um, you need the right incentives to do that. So thinking about these questions seems absolutely crucial to me as well. And on top of um, incentives of quality and fact-checking, etc., it's also about not losing sight of things that already work um, because it's still incentivized for news, for new ideas. And um, what you mentioned earlier about the Zettelkasten is having old ideas resurface and having new ideas checked back with things already working. Um, even in science, you don't have the incentives of um, repeating old ideas, <laughs> um, even though they are much more likely better than a new idea, um, because they've already proven to work. And it gives you also a better idea about the state of the world, um, when you not only focus on things that are currently discussed, that but also taking into account solutions that already work so we don't pay attention to them anymore. We seem to have this fascination with the new and this deprecation of the old. And so it seems like a lot of people are busy reinventing stuff that's already been there before because we are all building on the shoulders of giants, et cetera, et cetera. One of the interesting things is to understand sort of the lineage of an idea and the many different kind of attributions that are worth thinking about as you use the idea and go implement it. Not that everybody needs like to be credited in the footnotes, you know, each time, but rather that these are assemblages of insights from different places. I, I, when I was young, I watched the the Connection series on PBS that James Burke did, and and that had the motivational sort of uh, force for me that Carl Sagan or Star Trek or you know other other things had for other people. And and I've met tons of people who like, oh my God, once I read X or watched the movie, you know, watched Star Wars for the first time, I knew what I was going to do for the rest of my life. Um, but for me, it was this thread of connections, of adjacencies and conjunctions and accidents and insights that took, hey, I'm going to borrow from this and connect it to that. And the medium doesn't let us do that. We're sort of in this, uh, as you were saying, Gordon, earlier, we've trapped information in little app boxes, right? Where once, once they're in apps, they're in that app and not in another app. And that's, that's holding us back in some really interesting way. Um, so I'm wondering, um, what do you both see in the road going forward, just generally? Like, what do you wish for or what do you see emerging? Uh, anything like that? What, what does the road ahead look for in, what does the optimistic road ahead look for you? I'll offer a couple thoughts and then I'd love to turn it over to Zinka. Um, you know, when I started this journey, it felt like of building an open protocol for thought. It felt like a real uphill battle. Um, but I think there's a funny inflection point happening now. Uh, this is just maybe a high-level observation. Um, on the technical level, there have been a number of developments around uh, what um, Jay Graber over at Twitter Blue Sky calls self-certifying protocols. This is a little in the weeds, but it used to be the case uh, that to securely do something with a computer, you had to essentially have some root of authority um, 
Now, ordinarily, that's fine, I think. Um, what it means, though, in practice is that users don't really own their data or their experience if they're interacting with the network. Somebody else does, somebody who's running that cloud computer. Um, but there's a new sort of uh, range of cryptographic protocols, one of which we're using IPFS, it's a peer-to-peer -peer protocol, that allow you to make sort of certain security attestations without any root authority. They use math, basically. They use cryptography to kind of make security guarantees. Now, this is really low-level stuff. Um, but what it does do is it kind of lets us construct uh, protocols like Newsphere, the protocol we're building, that are kind of... Uh, outside the reach of any particular app or player. Like, we're building Newsphere, we're building an app on top, but if you want to build something on top of Newsphere, I can't tell you no. It's just, it's out there, it's an open protocol. Um, likewise, if you're a user and you're putting your data into the app, it's getting uh, persisted onto Newsphere, uh, you can get it out again. Uh, you can get it out again through any IPFS node, uh, which, you know, there's a bunch of them out there. Cloudflare runs a bunch. People who, uh, you know, I don't control. Uh, and so your stuff kind of belongs to you in a way that it didn't in the past. It's also possible to link across apps uh, through this shared space in a way that wasn't possible in the past. I feel this is kind of hopeful, and it's sort of um, happening at this funny moment where a lot of these large web platforms... Uh, <laughs> There's a lot of drama on Twitter today uh, with, with the Elon Musk takeover. Many people are unhappy and they find themselves in the unfortunate position of suddenly realizing there's no exit, right? Like you can't take it with you. It belongs to Elon. Um, this is, you know, that's fine. It's a business, but it doesn't really seem like a good way to be constructing a, um, a shared repository of knowledge for humanity. Like I would much more ideally like that to belong to everybody. <laughs> so, you know, and, and uh, you know, just speaking, speak, speaking as a technologist, this is tractable in a way that it wasn't even six or seven years ago. Um, so I, you know, there's a long road ahead and a lot to do, uh, but I feel quite ho hopeful and I'm pretty excited about the people we see showing up, you know, on our open source project contributing. Um, feels like perhaps there are some marginally brighter days ahead. I hope so. And Suzunka, before you head into like the future, um, IPFS is the interplanetary file system. Are you wandering into that those areas? Is that familiar territory for you, or is, or is that part of like where the tech world is heading uh, off off your radar right now? Well, I kind of follow developments, but very broadly, and as a layperson who doesn't really understand what's going on, um, but. What I'm interested in, Gordon, um, where do you see the role of institutions? So, because what you described is very much um, private enterprise, and I share your um, optimism how much still is possible and how much of a breakthrough it would be to have a more interconnected um, shared information space. Um, that is not locked in individual apps and um, controlled by individual companies. But what is about institutions like science, like governmental institutions or existing non-governmental institutions who also develop ideas about approaching information in a more shared thing? I, I'm thinking about Bellingcat or forensic architecture, so open source um, organizations so is there a way of collaboration looking out for solutions they already came up with um offering technology um so what are your thoughts on that that's an excellent question you know i think a a lost social technology in tech is is this process of institution building if you look at the bones of most of the systems we use today, uh, the sort of the web 1.0, if you will, um, it was it, it still today runs on top of shared institutions, the IETF, ICANN, W3C. Um, I think there was a brief period between sort of that era of tech and maybe the web 2.0 era of tech, we could call it web 1.5, where we we still had that social technology. We had the Wikimedia Foundation, the Apache Foundation, 
um, all of these systems, these institutionalized kind of systems, seem to have a lot more longevity uh, than than much of the rest of tech. Like, who remembers MySpace? Uh, but you know what? Like, W3C is still trucking, and so is the IETF, and they're they're just quietly humming away, writing these shared standards that keep everything else running. Um, I think it'll be uh, a, a, a good challenge for us um, to do some institution building in the future. We, we're already beginning a little bit of this process. There are other people in the IPFS world who are, you know, sort of contributing shared infrastructure peers to the network. Uh, we're not the only ones. There are a lot of people who do it for a lot of reasons. We've been talking about sort of building an institution, uh, maybe call it something like the Content Addressing Alliance. So you could think of it as something like ICANN, an open body that anyone can join. Um, there's a long road ahead, and we're at a very, very early stage here. Um, but for my my perspective on the matter is that this is the way you build things that last. Um, and I, I think there's a story here in which uh, these institutions coexist rather nicely with, um, you know, sort of shorter-lived commercial uh, things too. Like if you're thinking on the de decades timescale, using sort of this Stuart Brandian framework of pace layers. You could you could think of the apps as being perhaps on a high-level fast pace layer and, and these institutions building infrastructure on a much lower sort of bedrock level uh, pace layer. And we need both. It's, let me insert a little chain of thinking here because I think it's, it might be useful and it's fascinating to me. There's a book I read a while ago um, called The Institutional Revolution, Measurement and Economic Emergence of the Modern World, uh, written by Doug Allen, I think at UCLA. And it was really cool. It focused on the pre-modern British aristocracy. And it said, why do these people hunt foxes with hounds and have expensive estates out in the middle of nowhere? Why did they have inherited positions when primogeniture? Why did they, like, why did they offer their daughters to court? There's a whole bunch of really weird behaviors in the aristocracy. And he says, this was all a way of creating trust at a distance. And he, he coins the term hostage capital. And he says... The, the crown basically had aristocrats hostages because they were all in on being aristocrats and short of being executed or imprisoned. They could be cut away. If they were cut away for having done something unfaithful to the crown, they they did not get good educations. The, the, young, the young men, women weren't educated at all, but the young men were busy like learning Greek and Latin and doing the grand tour of Europe. They were not given practical educations in what now we would think of as management because then you might be actually useful. Right. It's very, very interesting. And so I say all of that because there's a series of things we can look back on and think of as very dysfunctional that led to rule Britannia for like 150 years um, and the British Empire. And so now I find myself fascinated in institutional design. And I'll add a second thread in, which is um, most of our institutions today are designed from mistrust of the average person. So we build coercive systems. So the compulsory education system is one of my sort of tar happy targets here, or maybe unhappy targets, because it's, it's, it's so coercive and it creates scarcity at every turn. And the internet and the, the institutions you just put in, you know, in the conversation, Gordon, are designed from trust is what I call it. The internet, like the cool thing is that the IETF isn't busy inventing protocols. They're busy accepting proposals for, for protocols that got crowdsourced. And like, like the threshold is, hey, do you have a working protocol? Do you have running code? And do you have a bunch of people who'll say, yes, this works and it works like as advertised and here's what we're doing with it. In which case, cool. What we're going to do is we're going to bless it as one of the protocols that we think is safe and useful and part of our, the suite that, that composes the internet and the internet's future. And that's really cool because it's different from saying, hey, we're going to have an institution that's going to tell us what to do in the future. It's this emergent bottom up kind of thinking that leads to new platforms, new ways of being and all of that. And, and, and the web, Wikipedia, the internet are all what I think of as designed from trust. And sorry to insert a whole bunch of things there, but, but I think these things play into the future we would like in interesting ways because, because it, there, there is so much here that's about this boring sounding topic of institutional design. And yet it's cool. It's completely hot. Like gets me all excited anyway. Yeah, it's remarkable what a small community of practice can do, given long enough timescales. I think a lot of people in this sort of very utopian movement that some people call Web3 are rediscovering a lot of these things the hard way. Like this institutional design, um, uh, social practice has just been lost, um, and, and we're recovering it in many ways. 
Um, but <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess I'll, I'll leave it there. I think we've, we've got our work cut out for us. Um, but in general, the things that last are, are things with communities of practice and institutions around them. Is there anything you'd like to add or other things about the, the future of the space that, that matter to you? Yeah, I was thinking about what you said about trust and I'm wondering what is, um, do, do we think enough about um, what we need in institution to be able to build them on trust? So to have self-correcting mechanisms to come back to Gordon's reference to cybernetics Um it doesn't work with um, fixed designs, but it, you, you need dynamic systems that are self-correcting um, to build them on trust. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of optimistic that um, they will outlast other experiments that won't work out that well. It's it's it, we're sort of pressure testing all these things right now because communities that are high trust, that use trust uh, and learn what it means to do that, th th that is not a natural, gosh, instinctive thing. This is hard-won knowledge. So uh, Lynn Ostrom won uh, the uh, Nobel Prize for Economics in 2006 or 2008 for her work on governance, uh, pro governance principles for governing commons. And, and around the world, if you go pop the hood on indigenous ways of knowing, there's a whole bunch of, of peoples around the world uh, who understood how to manage commons together and make them fruitful so that everybody could live off the commons. And then we went and squished all of this and are living under a set of regimes that are, are given assumptions for how life must be. Uh, you know, uh, one of the one of the SDGs from the United Nations is uh, poverty. We we can't have people being poor. And, and I'm like, I would love it if people didn't need money so much and they still had shelter and food and were happy. Like, could we, could we go back to that? Because, because that's what life was like before the Industrial Revolution. It's like the idea that one family would, would, die, would fall off because they didn't have money wasn't a thing. Now, if they violated the norms of the, of, the, of the village, they might be ostracized and pushed to go to some other village. That was a really bad punishment back in the day. But right now we're busy pressure testing all these institutions and ideas because when a bad actor shows up in a community that has these good practices, they're often overwhelming. Uh, they often have weapons that, that the communities can't resist. And, and one of the questions is, in the world of software and ideas, what are the defensive techniques that don't mute participation and generosity and contribution, but instead promote uh, sort of the, you know, the generative use of, of these new ideas that are resilient to or resistant to intentional assaults uh, or what I call sometimes denial of discourse attacks, right? How do I flood the zone with, with shit so much that, that you can't even have a fruitful conversation anymore? It's a legitimate strategy. So I think we're, we're in that world in the realm of ideas right now. And I'm really interested in the connection between boxes of slip notes and those conversations, because I think that's really, really important. And how we clip out ideas and put them in our slips and share them with each other is a piece of how we solve this problem together. Yeah, and a lot is already in the title of thinking from the bottom up. I think that's kind of the um, common topic. Um, in designing institutions, protocols, etc., you can't do that top down. Um, so it might be a self-reinforcing uh, feedback loop that you have places to think in about um, how to improve the systems we think in, bottom up instead of um, top down. I love that. Um, we're getting near the end of our, our sort of time. Gordon, uh, do you want to add something to that? It feels like you've been thinking in that area for a whole while. I'll just offer, uh, going back to Eleanor Ostrom, um, a key condition for being able to make sense together uh, and to sort of avoid that sociopathic free rider problem you're talking about is for communities to have um, semi-permeable boundaries uh, and self-determination. Uh, that basically means the community needs to own the commons, uh, not someone, you know, in uh, <laughs> far away in Cupertino or, or elsewhere. Um, it has to be something that belongs to the people participating in it. Um, so I'm, I'm rather excited for a future where that's actually becoming more and 
possible. And and ironically, and I need I need either of you to think of something brighter to say than what I'm about to say. Um, but ironically, uh, between Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk, for example, uh, two of the wealthiest people on the planet own two of the most popular properties where all these ideas are being disseminated, shared, superconducted, sort of hyper-accelerated and so forth. Um, still, even as Facebook maybe is losing some users, the average monthly users uh, total more than the populations of India and China combined. So Facebook is the largest country on the planet. And it has a benevolent dictator named Mark Zuckerberg, and I'm 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 unclear on the word benevolent necessarily, um, but but that's the world that we're sort of facing, right? And all these decentralized protocols are a little crankier and quirkier to use, and yet they offer the future that we're painting here, and they care really a lot about the commons. Um, you know, and I don't know how much of a commons everything every everybody's pouring into Facebook actually is. Yeah, you know, having an emperor might be great up until you get a bad emperor, and then it's not so great. And then it's not uh, so it's great. Ask the, the Romans. Problem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. ask, ask yeah. the Romans. In in politics, that's called the bad emperor problem. I think you know um, there are returns to scale and centralization, but over long enough time scales, I think you know nature shows decentralized systems are more resilient. Um, so, I think we're we're seeing some of the. Uh, <clears throat> Some of the sort of web two centralized approach to things maybe falter a little bit right now. I won't prematurely call, um, you know, call time on it. Uh, but I think that it's pretty clear that uh, one era has sort of saturated and that something new is on the horizon. Unclear exactly what it is just yet, um, but uh, it'll be different. We're busy looking. Uh, Zunka, any any closing thoughts for this call? No, I really like what Gordon said earlier about um, the commons and um, this optimistic view about the development of a new face in technology. So um, I, I am really curious following what's coming up. And I feel um, we are at a cusp of something new. Um, so I'm happy to... Uh, be able to get a glimpse into what you guys are thinking in this area. Thank you so much. Thank you for being being our guest here, both of you. Um, I'm excited about this whole Tools for Thinking space because I keep running into what I think of as bonfires on the horizon. There's, there's a group of people who are the cult of Rome, right, and, and busy exploring Rome and sharing stuff with each other and making it better. And then there's a bunch of people who are doing subtle cuts and then really into it. There's a, you know, Tiago Forte has built a second brain in his communities. And there's, these are sort of bonfires, and they're not really... They haven't walked across like at Burning Man to the to the to the to the man to sit and meet and share their art and talk uh, over a good cocktail. But we're heading right there. I think that's the place that we're going, and I'm very hopeful that those conversations and interactions lead us into the world we've been kind of painting on this call. Thank you all for listening to Tools for Thinking, a new podcast that might just help you with your thinking. If you're part of a startup in this sector, please knock on our door at betaworks.com. 